This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Don't forget to subscribe to join us with new episodes every Thursday and also feel free to like, share and leave us a comment. Now, this year, English Heritage are celebrating the many ways the past has shaped our nation through their year-long Voices of England campaign. And here on the podcast, we're starting our own investigations by looking at the influence of pre-Christian beliefs in shaping our landscapes, landmarks and language. Joining me to discuss what belief systems existed here before Christianity arrived and what evidence of these can still be seen today is English Heritage Trustee Professor Ronald Hutton. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's lovely to be back. So paganism is the term most often used to define pre-Christian beliefs. But how do we define paganism? Paganism is just the name that the ancient Romans gave to non-Christians. It means those who follow the religions of the Pargus, which is the Roman unit of local government. In other words, the old religions, the rooted religions. Some people recently have thought that it meant a country dweller, which eventually it does, but initially it doesn't. It just means the old traditional faiths. So a Roman definition for people who would have been living in the British Isles before the Romans even arrived? Absolutely. Right. What did the earliest prehistoric settlers then in England believe and what evidence do we have of this? Well, we don't have the faintest idea of what they believed because they didn't leave any writing and what they leave are monuments instead. The monuments are fantastic. Stone circles like Stonehenge, chambered long mounds, earthworks, monoliths. So we have an immense amount to work with in the landscape, but we can't get inside their heads. So we have no idea, not just of their beliefs about religion, but about society, gender, politics. And they're responsible for long barrows as well, is that right? Yeah, long barrows are the chambered long bounds. Right. And these are the burial chambers where the dead would have been laid, that sort of thing. They are the first great monuments of the human race as a really widespread tradition. There are 40,000 of them found around the western seaboard of Europe from Spain to Sweden, and Britain's right in the middle of that. Do we have any clue about the significance of those? Presumably there was an emphasis on venerating the dead at that time? Absolutely right. It's a religion mediated at least partly through the dead. It looks as if the dead are messengers or transmitters. Mm. And I think that's the message that we also get when we visit Stonehenge. Uh, when you go to the visitor centre, you'll learn that it's a temple and mostly about the dead and the living and rebirth, sun and that sort of thing. It's about all those things. Mm. So how do things change following the arrival of the Romans into um, southern England and, and the, as they push up into the rest of Britain? The Romans bring big stone-built temples of the classical kind, but they also give deities faces and voices. In other words, the Romans make sculptures that represent goddesses and gods, and they also have inscriptions in which people give names to goddesses and gods and address them, asking them for favours or repaying them. So you actually know a lot more suddenly about the nature of religion. Is it fair to say then that the prehistoric people versus the Romans were more in tune with nature and that the Romans kind of invented these personalities, these gods? The Romans were really in tune with nature themselves. Uh, It's a society in which almost everybody lives in the countryside still. 
And there must have been an idea among the Iron Age British that their goddesses and gods were personalities with particular faces and shapes and habits, because otherwise the Romans couldn't immediately have represented them in stone and uh, written inscriptions to them the way they do. It makes you wonder where the Romans got their ideas for the gods from. They got them from the Greeks, who got them from the people of Egypt and Babylon and Sumer. Right, so there's a lot of cultural sort of exchange and cross-pollination going on. It's a big leakage from east to west. Mm, That's very interesting. So what happens next, I suppose, is did things change again following the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons, who obviously took the place of the Romans after they left, and and then the Vikings? Do we have changes in beliefs there? Certainly. uh, The Anglo-Saxons and Vikings are very similar. They have a similar set of totally new deities, deities that haven't cropped up in Britain yet, because they're from Germany and Scandinavia. A lot of people will know these uh, goddesses and gods through uh, medieval or modern folklore. It's Odin and Thor and Freya and uh, Loki. And they don't build big stone temples. They, big, they build small wooden shrines. Uh, otherwise, it's ancient paganism as usual. And these gods as well, are they influenced by each other in terms of their names and their powers and that sort of thing? They're very similar. Uh, We aren't sure because Norse mythology is so rich because the people in Iceland wrote it down so much. And we know next to nothing about the stories that the Anglo-Saxons told about their gods. But their names are so similar and their attributes are basically so similar that uh, they do look like the same bunch. You mentioned that the names are similar there, but do any of these pre-Christian belief systems share other common features like uh, festivals, times of year? Yes. uh, Ancient paganism is basically about houses for goddesses and gods, temples, we would say, or holy places. And they're served by specialist priestesses or priests who keep them happy by uh, venerating them, praising them, uh, generally making them feel appreciated. And the general public doesn't do this. It turns up to the holy places a few times a year for festivals. The animals that are sacrificed as offerings to the deities are then eaten, so it's a kind of divine barbecue. So it's uh, an opportunity to enjoy festivity for all the things for which we always enjoy festivity. That sounds reminiscent of the solstice the solstices at Stonehenge, the winter solstice particularly, where they think that there's feasting going on? That's absolutely correct. It's very similar to what happens at Stonehenge today, except nothing gets barbecued. Yes, of course. <laughs> Interesting. It also, I suppose, feeds into our modern-day Christmas celebrations, you know, eating at a festival. Yes, the centre of a festival is a feast, literally. Yes, and, and food. These English heritage sites we've inherited today, do they have any evidence of these various foreign gods from across the ages, from prehistory and onward? English heritage has some of the very best types of prehistoric ceremonial monuments right from the New Stone Age through to the end of prehistory. And some of the best Roman sites, for example, at Corbridge, a Roman town uh, just south of Hadrian's Wall, Mm. there was an entire street of temples honouring foreign deities so that people visiting from other parts of the empire could call in at the temple for their kind of god. 
If you go up to Carraborough, which is uh, a wild moorland on Hadrian's Wall, you'll find uh, a fort there with uh, a temple to Mithras, the soldier's god, and a shrine to the nymphs, the water spirits, and also uh, a sacred well to the goddess, goddess Coventina, and all that's within a few feet of each other. And there's Lullingston Roman Villa as well. Is is that got a Lullingston deity? would be my third choice, mm. uh, largely because it got, it's got this beautiful shrine to the nymphs mm. of a spring underneath the villa. It's water source, and they're the most beautiful water wall paintings there, showing the nymphs uh, in the most exquisite kind of art deco, art nouveau kind of style. I mean, there's one particularly fetching feature, which is that they're they're tweaking the water from the nipples, their breasts, for, instead of mother's milk. Oh, right. Okay. So water being quite important at that site. And it's the source of life. You, mm. we, we can't survive without drinking, but also it's the source of cleanliness. Mm. That's really interesting. How successful then were these pre-Christian beliefs in terms of their longevity? Because when we think of Christianity today... We think of the way that we date our years, and here we are in 2020, so presumably that's 2020 years after the birth of Christ. But how long did these prehistoric religions, shall we say, belief systems last? Well, there, there are two answers to that. One is that Christianity has been around for 2,000 years, dominant for one and a half thousand and paganism was around for as long as human beings were up here first, which is about 40,000 years. So there's a great depth to it, which Christianity hasn't yet managed to clock up. But the other answer is that paganism never died in the sense that its stories, its art forms, its uh, sense of what goddesses and gods alike has just tracked on straight through the Christian centuries as a basic part of literature and art. Yes, and we mentioned during our Christmas episodes how a lot of Roman and um, prehistoric pagan belief systems are actually part of the modern-day Christmas story. That's right. Uh, a lot of pagan celebrations go in traditional folklore and folk customs, which turn into modern forms. And Christianity was basically a very powerful theology, a way of looking at the divine, which for practical religion then dressed itself up in pagan garments. In other words, the Christians took on basilicas, altars, robes for priests, hangings and decorations from their churches straight from paganism. So there's still this cross-cultural exchange centuries, millennia later. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's a medley. It's really interesting. How did these um, pre-Christian beliefs then uh, leave their mark on, on the English language? I, I'm, I'm thinking of you know, some of the days of the week, that sort of thing. That, that's all you need to think about. Those are uh, the only ones. But, well, no, the fact that we get our days of the week straight from uh, German paganism. And so the, Thor, is, Thor is Thursday, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, but uh, on the continent, they use the Greek and Roman names for gods, mostly Romans. So it would be Jupiter's yes. day. Uh, same thing, a weather god, but also place names. So if you live in Thundersley in Essex, you're in the sacred precinct, the god Thor. And if you're, you live at uh, Wednesbury, then you're in the town of Woden, that's Odin. Uh, if you truck around Wiltshire, where you come from, <laughs> then you're up on the Wandsdyke, which is the great earthwork dedicated to Woden. Oh, right. Oh, I did not know that. So when does Christianity take hold in England as, as a popular 
religion. It's a bit hard to say. Christianity takes hold as a state religion in the later Roman Empire when the Roman emperors convert to Christianity and impose it as the state religion. So it's the official religion in uh, England for a lot of the fourth century, the last century of the empire. After that, paganism among the British does seem to disappear uh, quite quickly in the south of Britain, more slowly in the north. So most of what's now England would be Christian by about the year 500. But we know so little about what happens just after the Romans pull out that we can't really get a story out of it. Do we know much about why the Romans ditched their Roman gods and preferred this newfangled thing called Christianity? Well, it's partly just chance or some would say providence or a miracle in that an emperor seizes power called Constantine whose mother seems to have been a Christian and who became convinced that Christianity was his personal faith. And uh, after that, it's basically the Christian emperors who win battles and the pagan emperors who lose them pretty fast. So that's why it looks like a winning religion. But also when you have a vast empire of different languages and ethnicities, you need a common religion to hold it together. And the old pagan religions with a great multiplicity of local deities couldn't really do that. Whereas Christianity, which is both uh, centred on one god and uh, a conquering missionary religion, is pretty well ideal. Yeah, that's, that really makes sense, actually. So it sort of solidifies all these different peoples from across uh, Europe and the world, potentially. How did Christianity change just English society as a whole? It hardly changes society at all. You know, the politics and society go on just as before. It changes religion quite a lot because it turns what's basically a complex of local faiths that have been there since time immemorial into England being one component of a universal Western Christian church, initially a universal Christian church, which is setting out to conquer the world and has a broadly common belief system. And what sort of year are we talking about when it um, really starts spreading through England? Well, it, it would have spread through what's now England uh, under the Romans towards the end. But then in come the heathen English and uh, de-Christianise quite a lot of it. And the English parts of England are taken back for Christianity in the, the 7th century. That's the 600s to the 700s. Why do you think that certain aspects and icons of pre-Christian society have survived, but not others? It all depends on what's useful. Stories about ancient Greek and Roman gods survive because they're good stories. Uh, they're the basis of Western literature, art, civilization. Festivals survive because they fit the rhythm of the year. Ways of uh, making images, icons, statues of deities can easily be turned into doing the same for saints. So wherever the continuity works, it's there. And what do you think is the legacy of England's pre-Christian societies today, the, the people who would have lived at Stonehenge, etc.? Why do you think people are still fascinated by those old belief systems? Two reasons. First is we're fascinated by the stories and the images of ancient pagan deities because the images are quite beautiful. And the stories are thrilling literature. They're the very stuff of which epic is made, all the way from Homer to Marvel Comics. 
The other thing is the prehistoric ceremonial monuments in which English heritage is so rich are so impressive and enigmatic. They move the imagination. The fact that we cannot for sure say who was worshipping what and what for when they were built means that people have a right to choose. And there's a wonderful freedom in populating these places with your own stories, your own dreams, that makes them people's palaces. Mm. And lastly, do you think that Christianity will continue to sort of diversify and evolve in the same way that it has done over the centuries with all these different denominations, Methodism, etc., etc.? Christianity is a remarkably adaptable religion because you have uh, a really quite complex and rich original text, the New Testament, with an even bigger backstory, the Old Testament. And there are so many different things people can read into it. So it's infinitely adaptable to different circumstances. So the stories will keep being retold in That's ways. exactly right. But the same is true also of the pre-Christian stories and the way in which we see the monuments. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To learn more about how England was shaped over millennia, you can read Professor Hutton's article in the Members Magazine. Next week, we'll be back to discuss the inspirational women with a connection to English heritage sites who played their part in changing English history. Thanks for listening. See you next time.